America is a nation built on democracy and the rule of law. The people elect leaders, leaders make laws, and we all follow those laws. It's pretty simple, and it works well in a functioning democracy. Today's guest, he knows a lot about how the law works and doesn't work in America. Now, don't turn off the show when I tell you this, but he's the first guest on Remade in America who is also a lawyer. Until last year, Preet Bharara was one of the most powerful lawyers in America. He served for eight years as the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. He prosecuted Wall Street criminals, rooted out public corruption, and put violent offenders in prison. It's the best job that I could ever imagine. I can't imagine another job for, for me and given what I like to do and you know whatever meager talents I have. Preet put some pretty high-profile bad guys in prison and shut down billion-dollar hedge funds in the process. In fact, Showtime, you know, the TV network, loosely based the main character of their show, Billions, on Preet. On this show, people refer to U.S. attorneys as superheroes. So why would he quit being a superhero? He didn't. He got fired by President Trump, along with 45 other U.S. attorneys all over the country, all of them appointed by Barack Obama. Good morning. U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions asking for the resignation of 46 chief federal prosecutors left over from the Obama administration. Of those on the chopping block, Manhattan U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara, whose office handles some of the most critical cases in the federal judicial system. These days, Preet hosts a podcast just like me. It's a very popular show called Stay Tuned with Preet, also from CAFE. I guess that makes Stay Tuned our sister podcast. Our prettier, more accomplished sister, to be sure, but we are sure glad to be in the same family. On his show, Preet talks about justice and fairness. But today, he is my guest, and I'm going to ask him questions about my favorite topic, being an outsider. I'm Basim Youssef. This is Remade in America, presented by CAFE. I've been eating a lot of Sunbasket this summer. It's a vegan's dream. Instead of just eating handfuls of nuts, I'm learning to cook. And I owe it all to Sunbasket. Now, you too can explore new flavors, cuisines, and ingredients every week. Like me, you can also get delicious recipes and organic produce delivered right to your door, all thanks to Sunbasket. Now you get more options than ever. Just go to the Sunbasket app and pick from 18 recipe options every week. You can eat vegan like me, or choose paleo, gluten-free, and many other options. And these recipe options, they are so easy. Even a bad cook like me can follow them. Sunbasket works with the best farms and suppliers to bring you fresh, organic produce. Go to thesunbasket.com slash remade today to learn more and get $35 off your first order. That's sunbasket.com slash remade for $35 off. sunbasket.com slash remade. Okay, back to Remade in America, presented by CAFE. Today's guest is Preet Bharara, former U.S. attorney and current host of Stay Tuned with Preet. We kicked off our chat talking about his childhood and his parents. Yeah, so my mother and father uh, were both born in India. They had an arranged marriage in 1965. Uh, three years later, they had a son who they named Preet. Actually, Pretender is my full first name. 
My dad was a young doctor in India, and he wanted to come to the United States, but you couldn't at that time, for reasons that are not clear to me, you couldn't go straight to America. He had to go by way of the UK. So he got into a program outside of London. And then from there, he brought my mother and me to the first city we ever landed on in, in America, which was Buffalo, New York. Now, Buffalo, New York, for folks who are not from Buffalo, may appreciate that during the time when we used to have lots of snow, it was very cold and very snowy, and was the first time in my mom's life that she had ever seen snow. So you had this new Indian immigrant family coming from warm climate to like feet and feet of snow in, in Buffalo. But I guess that would explain for her, like why white people come to invade India because <laughs> they have a bad, very bad weather. So it's like, oh, that's why they come to our It country. may be, but you know what? You know, so I always say that my dad came to America, which is true for a better life. But what mostly I mean by that, he came, he came for the air conditioning. <laughs> he does not like warm weather. And so his definition of success was getting central air conditioning in, in our home in New Jersey when we finally moved into a house. So we lived in Buffalo for a little while, and then my mom and dad and I moved to Eatontown, New Jersey, and lived there. That's where I grew up. I heard that uh, there are certain parts in New Jersey where you have even more dense uh, populations of Indians, more than India itself. <laughs> it's more, more than India. India yeah. is pretty dense if you've yeah, been to yeah. Mumbai. Yeah. Pretty dense Indian population. But yeah, th there are a lot of Indian immigrants in certain parts of New Jersey where we lived growing up in Monmouth County by the shore, as Bruce Springsteen says, where everything is all right. There were not as many. So it was still confusing to people, you know, what I was. Kids in school didn't understand what it meant when I said I was Indian. And I was asked from time to time, this is all true, if I lived in a teepee. Hmm. You grew up as an outsider, as someone who does not belong I did, well, there? <clears throat> yeah, I think so. You know, we <laughs> there's this tension, uh, as you know, between wanting to fit and belong and be American and Americanized, and also my parents' intent, which was very strong, in retaining some identity from where you're from. Mm. So, you know, my, my brother and I probably were not so great at that uh, balance early on. You know, here we were. We, we liked, you know, baseball. We wanted to be like every, every other kid. You know, we wanted you know, Western food cooked in the home. We, we loved Indian food, but my mom learned how to make burgers and pasta and apple pie and all those things. But she did it always with a little bit of flavor in Indian, which, you know, when I got older years later, I appreciated, you know, what the, how good the mix was. Mm. So her burgers were spicy mm. before that was a cool thing. And um, then we went, you went to McDonald's and that was a culture shock. That, like that was, that's <laughs> although, not how you're supposed to do burgers. It's not, but, but it was so American that my brother and I literally had multiple of our childhood birthday parties mm. at McDonald's. It's probably shocking to people mm -hmm. in the in the modern day now. People wouldn't even have their birthday at Shake Shack. Mm -hmm. But back then, it was a quintessentially American Jersey thing to do, and and that that's what we wanted. And you know, I don't remember any time thinking I didn't like Indian food or Indian culture. But we were trying really hard to be like all the other kids in in school and like all the other kids on the block. Uh, but there were times when you know kids made fun of me. Uh, I had a funny name. Um, you know, people didn't understand exactly what the background and the culture was. Uh, my parents had, you know, my, my mother more than my dad had, you know, fairly thick accents. But back then, in the sort of early 70s, when there are not too many of you and people are a little confused and you're a young kid trying to fit in and have everyone think that you're just like them, you know, it caused a little tension in your, in your brain. I mean, I, I'll, I'll give you one story that I remember. I remember um, being in school and some kid asked me what my, you know, what's your name? And I told him my name. He said, well, what's your... 
but what's your real name? I said, what do you mean? What's my real name? And I said, um, I think that's my name. He said, no, no, no. Like, like I'm Joe. This is Johnny. You must this be Michael. This is Mark. <laughs> yeah. It's like, what's your, what's your real name like that? Yeah. What's that name? Hmm. And I said, well, like, I don't know. That's a very good question. Maybe my parents have hidden my real name. Maybe it's Eric. Maybe yeah. it's Chad. I don't know. And I went home and I asked my dad. I went through the whole back and forth that I had at school. And he said, uh, he actually got, he got a little angry because he thought that I sort of wanted to have, uh, you know, a simple monosyllabic or, or easily pronounceable, uh, you know, Anglo name. And I didn't. I was actually, I was like five years old and I was confused because these other kids thought that it couldn't, it's not possible that my name was Pretender. How could that be? That's outrageous. But I wasn't aware at the time that there was something odd until people would ask me these questions and say, you know, people would ask you know, kids, right? We say kids are wonderful, and they are, and my kids are, but, but you know, they're, because they're kids, they're also clueless, and sometimes their cluelessness can be, um, you know, obnoxious and hurtful. I mean, and I was, you know, I was asked about my home country, which I knew nothing about. It's sort of interesting when you think about people being from someplace. Uh, you know, I had no memory of, of India, and I was, I was asked to defend and talk about things, you know, are there schools in India? You know, is there, are there kitchens in India? Is there plumbing in India? I said, I believe so. Um, <laughs> I would have told them to Google it at the time, but this was, this was pre-Google. <laughs> so fast forward to your uh, law school year. I, I mean, I've seen your resume. You're pretty good. You're no slouch either. You have a very good resume too. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Wow, this is. I, a mean, I love this show. I mean, you're a brilliant. I mean, like, I'm just like I have like a <laughs> like a bunch of a bunch of questions here. First of all, this is my how, favorite interview ever. How come you're not a doctor? And yeah. uh, was there some sort of diversity in law school? Did you find other Indians in your law school, or what? You're also one of the very few people there, and people thought that you lived in a TP. Yeah, um, <laughs> there were fewer TP comments. Okay. When I was in law school, the very few. Uh, it's funny, I just spoke last week at the South Asian Bar Association conference, which now has hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. But, you know, my, the, the wave of immigration, I think, from South Asia, there's a lot of it in the late 60s and early 70s. And so my parents were sort of a little bit at the beginning of that. So among Indian American lawyers in the country, I'm among the older ones. You know, the melting pot, which I believe in, um, but I also believe in you know, being proud of where you come from. You know, everybody loves to talk about how I'm a huge Bruce Springsteen fan, and I've been to the live show on Broadway three times. I've been to his concerts dozens of times. I listen to his music all the time. That's great. And people like to, you know, they write that, you know, pre Parara, Springsteen fan. It's true. I also like Bhangra music. Mm-hmm. I also like um, the music that my parents listened to when I grew up. Mm-hmm. And I listen to that still, too. And my, my kids hear it. They don't understand what the hell it is, <laughs> but they know that, that dad likes it and listens to it. And that's what I think is great, right? You know, you can go to Shake Shack and have a burger, and I can have my mom's, you know, gobi parata, which is basically the best food on earth. It's, you know, cauliflower chopped in bread that's, um, that she does something magical to. And that's a wonderful thing. Preet was well-fed and well-educated too. By excelling at Columbia Law School, Preet put himself on a career trajectory that landed him one of the most coveted lawyer jobs in America. You were a U.S. attorney. It was. Emphasis on past tense. Yes, you were. For our listeners who always hear the, that position, U.S. attorney, what do they do exactly? So I didn't do much. Um, I, like, I, uh, I took the credit and the blame when good things or bad things happened. So technically, it's the chief federal law enforcement officer in the Southern District of New York. 
which includes Manhattan, the Bronx, and a bunch of counties, North Westchester and others north. So the Southern District of New York is a federal prosecutor's office that is contained within the Justice Department that typically has and had when I was there about you know, 220, 230 assistant U.S. attorneys who are among the finest lawyers you'll find anywhere in the country. It's a very hard office to get into, who handled all sorts of criminal cases and civil cases on the criminal side, cybersecurity, terrorism, mafia cases, gang cases, political corruption cases. Um, it's much in the news these days because the Southern District of New York reportedly is the office that is leading the investigation of Donald Trump's former personal lawyer, Michael Cohen. So we, we investigated and prosecuted cases and also defended the United States when it got sued on our, on our civil side and sometimes brought you know, lawsuits ourselves for clean water and clean air. Um, and if we thought you know, certain civil frauds were going on, uh, it was a great place. We did a lot of good stuff, I think. And I hear that the Southern District of New York is uh, quite a unique district, you know, hedge funds, uh, Wall Street. Do you um, recall some of the most interesting cases that you handled? I've forgotten them all. <laughs> <laughs> Look, you know, what... SAC Capital. SAC Capital, oh, yeah. Um, we charged a lot of people at SAC Capital, which was a, a large collection of hedge funds. But, you know, Bernie Madoff was prosecuted by my office. He, he pled guilty before I became the United States attorney, but then there was a long and arduous process of trying to hold accountable all the people who were his enablers, including his accountant and other people who worked at his firm where they, you know, built people to the tune of tens of billions of dollars. And then also equally important and some ways more important was to do everything we could to get money, you know, to, to forfeit money that other people had made inappropriately to give back to the victims of the Bernie Madoff. And it was probably, that's probably the biggest fraud in, in history, or at least in recent history. I used to say that you know, if the fraud was so big, he would have made Mr. Ponzi blush. Um, so, the, you know, the, the financial crime stuff was broad and deep. And um, I was told many times that the Showtime show uh, show, <laughs> Billions. I know where you're going with that. Uh, Chuck Rhodes uh, in Billions, uh, they say that the, this character is based on you. So I went and I watched the pilot. And in the first scene, the very first scene, yeah, you know, that character that's based on you yeah. is engaging in some peculiar uh, Fifty Shades of Grey-like uh, activity. How close or how far uh, the show is from your real life? Yeah, Basically, it's 100% true to life. It's, uh, it's based on a, a memoir that I wrote that never, I never published. Uh, no, it's all false. It's all, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm trying to fit in here. Awesome. This is not this is not helping me, and and now my parents won't be able to listen to the show. So thank you for that. So on the personal side, uh, no comment. On the professional side, the character who is played by noted Indian American actor um, Paul Giamatti is a uh, <clears throat> <laughs> they even whitewash your character. They, I can't they, yeah, they whitewash they your character did. with Paul Giamatti. Okay, he was very. No, I had I had I had dinner with him. We discussed what it means to be uh, the U.S. attorney. And I, the one thing I told him when we had dinner, I said, you have to shave your beard. U.S. attorneys don't have beards. And here I am now, because we're both sitting in the studio. I, for the time being, have a beard. <laughs> and I was led to believe that he was going to be the total good guy. And then the plot sort of changed over time. And he's not as upright and ethical as I would say uh, the traditional United States attorney, hopefully myself included, is. But... Uh, Look, some of the stuff that happens, the way that cases get investigated is true to life. But, you know, people in my office, you know, they're, they're such sticklers for everything being exactly the way it happens in real life and things don't happen as fast as they do in a TV show. You know, so that's, that stuff is always, uh, you know, shortened and condensed. But uh, 
yeah, some of the stuff is true. Some of it's not. So um, the biggest story or the biggest part of the story that I think people are waiting to hear about is the part where you get fired. Oh, Yes. Yeah. You were fired by Donald Trump and you were not even on his show. <laughs> I wasn't. <laughs> no. But 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 like is it by law like US attorneys have to resign under a new president or is it no, optional? That, how does it how does no, it work and why was that a big deal? Yeah, that's the norm and it's not a big deal necessarily. It is understood and expected that when a new president comes in, particularly one of the other party, you leave over time in an orderly process. That's what happens after every, you know, change in power at the White House. Um, I was appointed in 2009 when Mitt Romney and Barack Obama were locked in campaign battle. If Mitt Romney had won, I fully expected I was going to be leaving and thought about the things that I might do. And when Donald Trump won, I thought the same thing. Then in my particular case, it was just very unusual because to just, you know, abbreviate the story, Donald Trump, president-elect Donald Trump asked to meet with me and asked me to stay for another term. And it was a you know, lovely conversation. We had a, we had a, you know, a, a nice talk. There was nothing inappropriate about it other than the weird thing where he asked me for my phone numbers and then called me a few times, which... It's odd when the president-elect asks you for your digits. So it was perfectly normal to leave. Um, there's never been a time when out of the blue, on a moment's notice, every United States attorney in the country appointed by the previous president was asked to vacate the premises you know, by the close of business on that day. That was an odd thing. And one would suppose that if you're doing that, that you have replacements ready. There's still, literally, there still has not been a nominee for my old spot. It's been uh, inhabited by a series of acting and interim folks, and the current person was interim and has now been appointed by the court under a particular provision of law. But I refused to resign because I wanted to make sure that this was the wish of the person who had asked me to stay. If it had been in the normal course, people go, people people stay if they're asked to stay. What was unusual in my case was I was specifically asked to stay. I've lived long enough to know <clears throat> that you want a record to be clear and to see if there was some nefarious reason. The president absolutely has the authority. Um, to you know, hire and fire whoever he pleases, who's a political appointee. But at the same time that this was going on, there were calls for investigating things. I had jurisdiction, obviously, over various interests of the president of the United States. And instead of being fired, you know, by some factotum who asked me to resign, I just wanted to be clear that it was the president's own wish. Because it was the president's own wish to have me stay, I thought it was only appropriate for the he public record. He asked for record. your digits. He asked for my digits, man. Oh, yeah. yeah, so I thought, you know... I'm like, is he ghosting me? Like, what's happening here? I don't know. Wow, he ghosted you, damn. Yeah, isn't it cool that I know that term? Oh, damn, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, is it cool that I know that term? I'm an immigrant. This is all second language to me. <laughs> this is actually, that's no, very impressive. What do you think will happen to Trump? Will he get impeached or uh, reelected or um, just fade away in the abyss? <laughs> I don't think that guy fades away. That's yeah. not something he does well. Niels Bohr once said, uh, prediction is very difficult, especially about the future. And so I, I sort of I sort of stand by that. Because all the pe- all these smart people, all these pundits, they all look like idiots now because they kept predicting. They predicted, you know, he wasn't going to get elected. He wasn't going to win the primaries. He wasn't going to do this. He wasn't going to do that. You know, people predicted the stock market would tank and it hasn't. I think a lot will depend on what happens with the elections in the fall. I think if the House of Representatives changes hands, then as a political matter, I think there'll be a lot of investigations. A lot, I think a lot of bad things will come to light. I don't know what the appetite for impeachment is. It depends on what Bob Mueller decides to do, what kind of report he issues, what happens to the other people he's investigating. My long way of saying, I don't, I don't know. I also don't know what will happen, but I know what I don't want to see, an impeachment. In my opinion, it would be an easy out for the orange menace. 
I'd rather see him lose the next election fair and square and continue to deal with lawsuits, prosecutors, and prisons. But that's just one guy's opinion. While Preet and I compare our definitions of ghosting, let's take a break to talk about our sponsors. When we come back, Preet will tell us about his transition from lawyer to podcast host, law professor, and legal analyst on TV. And we're going to hear from some of our listeners, too. So don't leave us. When I look at Preet's resume, it's quite impressive. If I had used ZipRecruiter when I was hiring my producers, maybe I wouldn't have to recycle this same exact joke every other week. There's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. A place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. That place is ZipRecruiter.com slash remade. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. And it won't take long either. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. With results like that, it's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is the highest-rated hiring site in America. And right now, my listeners can try a ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash remade. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash R-E-M-A-D-E. ZipRecruiter.com slash remade. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. I used to love traveling until I got a Casper mattress at home. I've been on the road for a week now, and all I can think about is my Casper mattress. I miss you, buddy. Support for Remade in America comes from Casper, a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. At Casper, mattresses are perfectly designed for humans. They are engineered to soothe and cradle your natural geometry. Oh la la! Casper brand mattresses combine multiple supportive memory foams for a quality sleep surface with the right amounts of both sink and bounce. Casper offers free shipping in the U.S. and Canada, and if you aren't completely satisfied, Casper makes it easy to return your mattress at no charge and no hassle. You can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. Get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com remade and using promo code REMADE at checkout. That's casper.com slash remade and promo code remade for $50 towards select mattresses. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, back to Remade in America, presented by Cafe. Before the break, we talked about Preet's career and identity as a lawyer. Now we're going to talk about his new project, a podcast called Stay Tuned with Preet. I like sitting down every week like I know you have been doing and talking to someone really interesting for a long time and getting into depth on things. And the response to the podcast has been great. We have, I'm not allowed to say the exact numbers, but it's a lot of people mm-hmm. who, who listen every week. Some people claim they listen more than once. I think people find it educational. People are learning something about the criminal justice system. I think people are very curious to understand based on the quest, some of the questions you just asked me. You know, how does the system work? How does impeachment work? How does the justice system work? How is it supposed to work? Is it working at all at the moment? And these are all things that people are more curious about now than they ever have been before. So what began as something that we thought we'd do for a while is something that I think hopefully will be a permanent feature of you know what I do, no matter what else I do. 
I really enjoy the idea that you know, when something comes up that's interesting and that's in the world, whether it's the separations of the border or the Supreme Court nomination, that there's some very, very smart and thoughtful person that I can sit down with and, and talk about it and you know, get to learn myself. You know, that when I talk to guests a lot, um, it's not just for the audience. It's also for me. And you know, I think the best shows that we put on, I'm sure this is true for you also, are the ones where I'm learning as the person is telling me things too. I don't know the answer. You know, in my old job, you know, as the saying goes, a lawyer should never ask a question in court that he or she doesn't know the answer to. This is a little bit the opposite of that. Mm-hmm. I like asking questions I don't know the answer to because then I learn something. And then you can ask a follow-up question. You know, on television, and I do television also, and I mean no disrespect to the folks who do a job of bringing us the news on TV, but there's not a lot of thoughtfulness you can get across in four, five, six, seven minutes, no, no follow-up. And I like, ask, I like answering the questions I get from, from listeners also. So I learn a lot. Hopefully people are getting something out of it. Um, and it's something a little bit different. I tried to get Preet to tell me his favorite guest, but he's too smart to answer that question. Lawyers, am I right? But I did get him to answer who his dream podcast guests are. Who would I love to have? Someone asked me this once in a print interview, so I don't want to say... So among them would be Bruce Springsteen mm. and, and Malala Yousafzai. I would pick Melania Trump. I want to know what the hell is <laughs> what would happening. You ask? In, what would you ask I don't, her? What the hell is happening in your house, guys? What is it? Like, what is it? What, is I think like, she would play the fifth. Do you think? I think she's already bleeding the fifth in America. Have you asked? She's remade in America, certainly. Yeah, I, I think she's recorrupted in America. So uh, <laughs> what's in store next for Preet? So I'm finishing writing this book. I'm writing a book on, okay. on justice, mm-hmm. how it's accomplished, how it's stymied, um, why the, the beard is still here because I'm not done. Um, my editor is emailing me every day saying, where's the draft of the book? Uh, and then after the book, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see. So I've sort of taken this year to do these new things. I did not have a great appetite to go to a law firm and and represent the kinds of people that I used to prosecute. Great that people do it, and you can make a lot of money doing it. You know, there's a lot of money being left on the table. Um, but that's not really my cup of tea at the moment. Uh, and would you, if, if you were offered to be a prosecutor again, uh, would you do it? Uh, it depends on what the opportunity is and what's going on, mm-hmm. you know, in my life. I, look, I spent 17 and a half years in, in public service as a prosecutor and as a staffer on the Hill. And I, you know, I would have done it long. Look, I, I agreed to continue serving even though I had my differences with this current president, because I think the job is one where you don't serve a president, you serve the public and your oath and the Constitution, and it's the best job that I could ever imagine. I can't imagine another job for, for me and given what I like to do and you know whatever meager talents I have to sort of get up every day and try to do the right thing. And if the case doesn't make sense to bring, you don't bring it, and if it's not right to make an argument, then you don't make the argument. I don't know what's better than that, um, not, even, not even a podcast. So we'll see what the future opportunities are, but I, I'd like to find ways... Once the book is done, which should be any moment, nice. um, to do other things in public service. And there's lots of things that citizens can do now. There, there are a lot of ways to support a lot of things. And we just did a broadcast with Vanita Gupta, who was the former head of the Civil Rights Division at DOJ. And she makes a very strong pitch. You know, people think that they can't do anything. What's one person going to do? And it turns out that all the voices of all the people, not the politicians necessarily, but all the voices of all the people who were outraged that, you know, infants even were being taken away from their parents' arms at the border for a misdemeanor because they were seeking asylum and escaping violence from their Central American homes. The reason that that had been partially reversed is because lots and lots of ordinary people got upset about it. So I'd like to, I'd like to get more involved in things like that and other injustices that I see. I'm just not quite 
immediately sure how to go about it. Usually, this is where I recap the conversation, give you my thoughts, and then respond to a voicemail from a listener. But Preet likes to do that on his show too, so we thought it might be fun to try doing it together. So our first question is from Kim, who called us from the Midwest. I am a person who lives in a small Midwestern town of about 35,000 people. We have pretty little diversity in our community, but we are having more immigrants join us. Can you share some common stupid things people with little exposure to people of other cultures do that creates barriers to people who are new to our community, just simply out of ignorance? What can we do in our small community to be more welcoming to people so that they don't feel like outsiders when they join our community? Thanks, and keep up the great work. We really appreciate it. Thank you for your call, Kim, and uh, since that you uh, have been actually been raised here as an immigrant, <laughs> and I just arrived, so I would actually like to listen to your response. Well, you know, as we talked about a little while ago, you know, when we first moved to New Jersey, people asked, you know, sort of off-putting questions like, you know, were there schools in India? Uh, do you live in a teepee? I think, look, I think the most important thing when you're dealing with people who are unfamiliar to you, either because of where they're from or the religion they practice or how they look, uh, is to is to talk to them like you talk to anybody else. <laughs> if, if someone moved to your small town, um, you know, who was a white American from San Francisco, you wouldn't treat them like an alien, hopefully, although, you know, there are some aliens in San Francisco. You would ask them about their kids. You'd ask them about what their interests are. You'd ask them, you know, why they moved to that town. You'd ask them about their job. You know, you would just talk about those things. And then you would also, you wouldn't leave aside the fact that they come from somewhere else. You, you know, nobody ever minds being asked questions about where they're from and, and what it's like. And so long as it's done in, in a way that's, that shows open-mindedness as opposed to sort of, you know, horror, like you're talking to a circus animal who, you know, is a, is a complete alien to you. Kind of you like norm, normalize it, like normalize yeah, it's, things. It's somebody like, comes from somewhere else. So talk what? to him as a, another human. You know, um, I'm going to comment on this from the immigrant side. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of people, especially people from second generation, third generation, second generation kids who are born here from, you know, uh, Asian descent and Indian descent and Middle Eastern descent, uh, who get offended when they're asked where you're from and they make a big deal out of it. Well, and I have to tell you, I used to do that a little bit. I don't agree with this because 99% of the time when somebody asks you where you're from, he's curious. And my problem with people of color reacting a little bit um, aggressively toward this question shows that they might have some sort of an insecurity of who they are. You are from India, from Japan, from China. Be proud of what you are. Yeah. You can, you, it's, it's, it's like you can say, oh, my parents are from India, but I was born in Wisconsin. But it's kind of like, what do you mean where I'm from? And, and, and I think this kind of like this passive aggressive attitude, I don't think it's... It's useful, and I, whenever my my daughter, she's she 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 speaks perfect English, and when when anybody asks her where she's from, she's like, I'm from Egypt, and my other son is born in, in the United States, and I will tell him always that you are from Egypt, but you're also from America. Yeah, to have the pride of who you are, that I think as if being American is superior to anything else. Yeah, look, I, look, I think sometimes a question can be asked aggressively. Hmm. Um, and ignorantly. Oh, yeah. In, in this it, case, it, you're it right. It can come across yeah. as like, where are you from? Yeah. Like, where did you come from? So That's yeah. a little different from, hey, so where are you from? And look, when you're an adult, you know, when people ask me now, you know, where are you from? Uh, you know, I, I, say, I say New York. 
uh, you know, I'll maybe make a joke. You mean, you mean before that? Mm-hmm. You know, you can sort of tell by a twinkle in the eye they're trying to figure out. It happens to me. I get, I get in a cab. Some people, th- some people think I'm Egyptian, actually, yeah. um, or, or Mediterranean. And they're asking, and usually other people of color, other ethnic folks yeah. are asking me, because they're actually trying to ask, happens all the time in New York, they're trying to find out if I'm actually one of them. Yeah. Right? And they're, they're testing me in the language and, and other things. So guys, be, for, for, for people of Africa, be proud of who you are. Chill out. Just like, you know, yeah, I am from Dhaka. I'm, I'm from Bangladesh. But what do you, where are you from? Anyway, so uh, uh, who's our All second right. question? All right. Our second question is from Tushar from San Francisco, one of the aliens. One of the aliens. It seems to me that corporate America is getting stronger every day and with Supreme Court helping it get even stronger. In the past, it was the central authorities co-opting with religion to oppress people. And now it seems like The role has been taken over by corporations teaming up with uh, authoritarian figures to oppress people. In this scenario, can we, instead of uh, we liberals fighting the religion, can we team up with religion and uh, use that partnership to fight back? Especially your experience with the Muslim Brotherhood in uh, Egypt uh, would be an interesting lesson in this. Uh, Thank you. I think I know where Tushar is from. Yeah. Um, I, I think he's from uh, San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's I, a hard one. I'm going to let you go with that. Well, well I think is like, no, uh, I would say uh, I agree with the first part of the question. Corporate America is becoming uh, extremely dangerous to the democracy of America. I, I just like find it incredibly unbelievable. unbelievable. It's like people with money can actually change the democratic process by paying all of these senators and all of these representatives and lobbying in order to change legislations and laws. And I, I don't think that's good for democracy. But teaming up with religion... If you're a liberal, usually uh, religious entities like the Muslim Brotherhood or like the evangelist uh, um, uh, entities here, I don't think that they're uh, good partners in this fight. I don't think they're going to be looking up for your own interest. That's, that's my two cents. All right, third question. Our third question is from Eric. Hi, Bossom and Preet. I'm Eric from Sun Prairie, Wisconsin. Love both your podcasts. Outsiders like gays, blacks, and Jews have always had an advantage because they see past the foibles of mainline society easier than the rest of us. Instead of Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny, they see through unselfconscious racism, entitlement, and white supremacy. How has your status as outsiders given you unique perspectives on American society? I think it's been very valuable to me to have had the immigrant experience and to appreciate how lucky I am that America let me and my family into the country. People would ask me from time to time, what's it like being, you know, the first Indian American U.S. attorney in New York or, you know, the first Asian American? Um, and, you know, I didn't like to talk about it so much. I don't think it was particularly relevant to the job, except in a way that I discovered later. And you, I would hear people ask some version of your question, which was... Uh, You know, does it make, you know, does being an immigrant make people feel more empathetic to, you know, underdogs or, you know, more fair or more good in some way? And I guess that's true in some cases. But I know immigrants who 
who are complete racists and terrible people. And I know people who have, you know, descended from the Mayflower in this country, in America, who are the most wonderful, honest, uh, full of integrity, open-minded people you'll ever meet anywhere in the world. So the, the fact that you have a particular pigment or that you have come from somewhere else, it does not determine in any way, shape, or form, ultimately, and as an absolute matter, that you will have greater insight and that you're going to be better in all those ways that you describe. I, I just don't believe that. Um, I do think if you focus a little bit on, you know, how lucky you are as an immigrant, and I like to do that, and you think that when much is given to you, you have something to give back. I mean, one of the reasons I did, I was in public service for 17 years is I felt I owed something to the country that gave my family so much. That puts a little bit, I think, of pressure and weight and burden on me and my brother to be appreciative of it and to give back to this country. And then the other way it's relevant, and never used to appreciate this, other people who were like me, who are maybe from India or from South Asia, who never thought about a career in law enforcement or that they could you know, do particular things, sort of look up and say, well, if, you know, if Preeparar can do it, and he's kind of an idiot, you know, then I can too. And uh, you know, lots of young folks who are Indian American have come up to me, particularly in the last you know, two or three years, saying, and it's, a very hard, it's very touching to me, and I didn't believe it at first, who would say that one of the reasons they were inspired to go to law school or they were inspired to think about a career in public service was because they read about something that I had done. And, and that is a, that's an amazing thing. Well, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you, Basil, for having This is me. like a lovely conversation. I enjoyed it, and uh, I can't wait for this uh, to be aired and shared by uh, millions of people and uh, thousands and thousands of downloaders. And uh, thank you, everybody. Yeah, and best of luck to you, Bas. Keep Keep it up. Thank you. I learned a lot from talking to Preet today. First, if someone tells you to quit your job, stand firm and tell them, I need to hear it from the president, then at least you'll have a great story to tell after. Second, if I want my kids to be successful in America, I should throw all of their birthday parties at McDonald's. And third, I'll know I've really made it when a white actor plays me on TV. Hey, Brad Pitt, I'm looking at you. But being serious, I love talking to Preet. He has a way of making ideas that are intellectually and emotionally complicated sound not only simple, but obvious. He's not worried about red versus blue. Instead, he thinks about right versus wrong. It's a great quality. One of my favorite moments from this conversation was Preet's response to Kim's voicemail, asking how to be welcoming to immigrants. He told her, talk to them like you talk to anybody else. So simple, so obvious. Preet echoed something powerful that we talked about in last week's episode, immigrant patriotism. Instead of making millions, he has done 17 and a half years of public service, all because he feels a duty to this country that gave his parents a chance so many decades ago. If you have an outsider story or a question for me, or want to suggest a topic that we cover on this show, tweet at me or call me at 785-4BASIN. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every good review makes it easier to new listeners to find this show. Remade in America is presented by Cafe and produced by Neon Hum Media. Our show producer is Vikram Patel. Editorial and production support from Ashley Cleek, 
Production assistance from Palavi Kotomasu. Our executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Our theme song is by Beethoven Music. And special thanks to Jeff Eisenman and Brian Carmel. Next time on Remade in America. How could any white supremacist hate those blue eyes? Oh. Did you ever just sit like General LCC down and like stare at him? Because I feel like that could have really won him over. That's next time on Remade in America. I'm Bassem Yusuf. Talk to you soon. <laughs>